Greetings. We don't have a microphone today. Our sound systems get just, we don't have a microphone today. So we'll do our best to talk nice and loud. And uh, to uh, bring us here, uh, Matthew has a chant he wants to teach us. So I thought we would begin with um, this ancient mother chant. I'm going to see, I think this, yeah, this paper is sticking. Yeah. Stick it. Some of you may know this. It's simple, but it's long enough that it's helpful to have the words. So it repeats ancient mother each line. It's simply ancient mother, I hear you calling. Ancient mother, I hear your song. Ancient mother, I hear your laughter. Ancient mother, I taste your tears. <laughs> and I thought we could sing this as a way of um, honoring uh, the ancient mother who is the, the primordial unity in which we're all held as a way of honoring this, the, the feminine principle that has been suppressed and oppressed in our patriarchal religious traditions. Um, so whoever, whatever those words ancient mother uh, speak to for you, uh, hold it however you feel led. But <clears throat> and, and if you would rather not chant, you can just hold the silence. So it goes this like this. I'll just begin singing it through once, and then as you're ready, feel free to join in. Uh, so first, let's just take a moment of silence to settle into the space. <clears throat> Becoming aware of the breath. Ancient Mother, I hear you calling. Ancient, just listen through the chant once so that you can learn it. Ancient Mother, I hear you calling. Ancient Mother, I hear your song. Ancient Mother, I hear your laughter. Ancient Mother, I taste your tears. Ancient Mother, I hear you calling. Ancient Mother, I hear your song. Ancient Mother, Mother, I taste your tears. 
ancient mothers, Eve, and Sarah, and Mary, and Khadija, and uh, all of the mothers represented across all three of the Abrahamic traditions, um, and the qualities that they represent, uh, the principle that they represent, that we have so often suppressed and oppressed in these traditions. And I thought it might be helpful to start with a little bit of framing uh, before we dive into breaking open this principle in each of our traditions. And it's been really a 19th, 20th century, 21st century work, effort to recover the feminine across our traditions. And if we go way back in human history, uh, well, we can say that hu human consciousness and therefore human spiritual traditions, which represent that consciousness, are evolving phenomenon. Um, human consciousness is evolving, the life of the planet is evolving, and our spiritual traditions are evolving. And if we go back to the early spiritual traditions that were expressions of our human consciousness, we actually find um, in the traditions that, that preceded, maybe they're not even traditions so much as currents, that preceded our patriarchal institutions, we find that we found our original gods and goddesses in the cycles, in the seasons, in the forces of nature, and our spirituality was largely earth-based. And with that came a, a valuing of the feminine. Uh, there were great mother traditions. She was honored through the cycles and seasons, through fertility rites and celebrations. And... <clears throat> During the window of time that scholars like to call the, the Axial Age, the first Axial Age, uh, roughly between 800 and 200 BCE, uh, that's the window of time when the headwaters of our major religious traditions began forming. So it's when you get the Buddha, it's when you get Lao Tzu teaching the way of the Tao, when you get the Hebrew prophets arising in Israel, you get the Greek philosophers, you get the uh, seers and rishis of the Upanishads in India, all of this is sort of happening at one period in human history and our religions begin emerging. Uh, and with this, patriarchy begins emerging and a new emphasis uh, begins a new emphasis on the transcendent starts coming to the fore. And so suddenly we're looking for God or for spiritual reality in the transcendent, sort of beyond the forces and the cycles and seasons. And with that comes a new valuation of the human individual. Uh, before that, our identity had been really tribal and collective. And then we start 
finding a, a new uh, appreciation of the individual, of the transcendent, of the rational, um, but patriarchy emerges. And uh, it's messy. Both of these currents are always interwoven, um, but what we've been seeing in recent times, scholars are saying is uh, essentially a second axial age where we're picking up all of the things that we lost in that first shift. We're picking up the appreciation of the feminine, of the earth, of collective identity. Of course, Judaism never lost a deep appreciation of collective identity um, in the way some other traditions did. Uh, we're picking all those things back up, but not at, at the old tribal level. We're picking them up at a global level. And we're not in the process, it's not a pendulum swing. You know, we've been patriarchal, now we're going to swing to matriarchal. But hopefully it's a spiral evolution where we're picking up all of those things that we had held at an earlier time and integrating them with everything else that's emerged since, with, um, with the transcendent, with the rational, with the individual, now integrated with the feminine, the collective, uh, the imminent. So I like to frame the conversation we're having in, in that sense, uh, in an evolutionary sense, that we're, we're picking back up something we lost and we're not just picking it up but integrating it and creating something new in the process. But what this is doing, it's sending us back to our traditions to find the, the threads and the strands that were there all along, that were often ignored or uh, either unintentionally ignored because our vision was focused elsewhere or sometimes actively suppressed. So I wanted to open with some passages from Christian and Hebrew scripture. And these are, who would, raise your hand if you would be happy to read in a loud voice. Read, read, read these aloud, yes. These are short passages from Hebrew and Christian scripture. And they're all connected to Hakma or wisdom, who's always personified as a woman, or Sophia in Greek, also wisdom, always personified as a woman. And you'll see she bears the qualities of God. So, these are passages, some of them in the Hebrew canon, uh, from Proverbs, from the Psalms. Some of them are from Jewish scriptures like Ecclesiasticus, uh, not Ecclesiastes, but Ecclesiasticus, or the Wisdom of Solomon, which did not become canonical in the Jewish tradition, but did become canonical in the Christian tradition. Um, so, would you each take one? So, what I'd like us to do, just... Pop like popcorn if you've got one of these readings. We'll just settle in the silence. And don't read the attribution. If it says from Proverbs, just read the passage. And I want us to sort of soak in the voice of feminine wisdom from the Hebrew tradition. So we'll settle in for just a brief silence and then jump in with the readings. And remember to project your voice. Wisdom is not silent. She boldly raises her voice above the din. She stands upon the most desolate peak and the busiest highway. At every intersection, gate, and doorway. Listen to me, all of you. Listen to me, for I speak of noble things. Truth comes from my lips. My words are just and simple. 
Reason and understanding will show you the rightness of my words. Accept me rather than silver and fine gold, for I surpass rubies. Nothing equals the gift I offer you. What is wisdom? She is intelligent, holy, unique, subtle, flowing, transparent, and pure. She is distinct, invulnerable, good, keen, irresistible, gracious. She is humane, faithful, sure, calm, all-powerful, all-seeing, and available to all who are intelligent, pure, and altogether simple. I am the breath of the Most High, blanketing the earth like mist, filling the sky with towering clouds. I encompass distant galaxies and walk the innermost abyss. Over crest and trough, over sea and land, over every people and nation, I hold sway. Resting your thoughts on her, this is perfect understanding. Staying mindful of her, this is perfect calm. She embraces those who are ready for her, revealing herself in the midst of their travels, meeting them in every thought. She is more beautiful than the sun, and the constellations pale beside her. Compared to light, she yet excels it, for light yields to dark, while she yields to nothing. She stretches mightily through the cosmos and guides the whole universe for its benefit. She arises in God and is with him forever. Established before beginnings, she transcends time. She is God's word, a fountain of understanding. Her ways are timeless, linking each to all and all to one. Wisdom shines without dimming. All who love her, see her. All who desire her, embrace her. She rushes to reveal herself to those who yearn for her. No matter how early you arise to find her, she is already waiting for you at the gate. She is the mobility of movement she is the transparent nothing that pervades all things. She is the breath of God, a clear of emanation of divine glory. No impurity can stain her. She is God's spotless mirror reflecting eternal light and the image of divine goodness. Although she is one, she does all things. <clears throat> Without leaving herself, she renews all things. Generation after generation, she slips into holy souls, 
making them friends of God and prophets. For God loves none more than they who dwell with wisdom. The first human did not know wisdom fully, nor will the last ever fathom her. For her mind is more spacious than the sea, her counsel more deep than the great abyss. I am the mother of my love, of true love, wonder, knowledge, and holy hope. Beyond time, I am yet given to time, a gift to all my children. Wisdom is the earth's foundation and understanding the sky's pillar. She is the divine order patterning all creation from the ancient oceans to this morning's dew. So did you know she was there in scripture in this way? I know many of you did, but I also see Hud saying, no, I didn't know. Hmm. That's beautiful. So thank you all for giving her voice to us from, from scripture. And Jonathan, maybe you, these are really, they're scriptures from both of our traditions, but they originate in Judaism. So if we're in the tent of Abraham, this would be at one of its earliest uh, layers, right? Uh, I, thank you, that's so beautiful. I want to add that for, in my experience, the movement of feminism is such a blessing because it's forcing us, uh, at least, yeah, to, and the people who aren't being forced are still feeling constrained by it, right? And, uh, but it's forcing us to, as a, as a, to hear the voice of women. And it's only by women speaking up, as far as I'm concerned, that this is that we're getting to this place you know without that there's no there, why 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 would i do that right uh but then until it becomes clear to me that it i have that i'm missing out on half the sky so i'm i'm really grateful to live in an era of feminism where women's voices are reminding us to always listen to women's to the voice to the voice of woman so that's very important to me. I feel very enriched by it. And it's, it's exciting. I find it very exciting. In the Torah, which is when you claim one God and then you privilege one gender for that one God, even though when you read Torah, you see that God has many names, including feminine names, Nonetheless, the warrior king god, lawgiver, potentate, rules, right? But it seems like that's not how the universe is working, is works. <laughs> and the way the universe works is actually in the beautiful um, uh, fullness of polarity and two-ness, making oneness. And, you know, so, so the divine feminine keeps surfacing in the Bible. And the most prominent way it does is what you've been reading as chokhmah, which means wisdom, 
which gets translated into Greek as Sophia, which is a distinctly feminine name and characteristic. Chochmah, wisdom, is the creator God's consort through whom, who carries within her the blueprint of creation and through whom God creates the world. Does that make sense, everybody? And she's never named in the Bible as a god. But those readings elevate her. Do you hear what I, I mean? So you can't acknowledge that God has a consort, and yet these later books in the Hebrew Bible do. And it's quite beautiful to study them and recognize that, uh, that uh, God's playmate, as it were, which is one of the words that is used in a colloquial translation, is this divine feminine. She's even sort of seen as an extension of God. I am a breath from the Almighty. I am the word of God. I am God's spotless mirror. Um, that somehow she reflects in manifestation the qualities of God which are you know, hidden in the divine essence, that she's the sort of manifest face of God. Right. Because the two-ness is an expression of the one and is always going to find, it's always going to be like breather and breath or lover and beloved. It's always so, uh, just one moment, Joan. Um, uh, and yet, this, this remains an, well, one of the questions ahead for us is what would it mean to, to actually give the, the, the full presence and of, of place to the feminine principle in our faiths? And that's, that's the challenge of the 21st century, I think. Um, would either of you like to say something, Rabia Karuna? Before, I, before we take questions, because now only the men have spoken up here so far. <laughs> I noticed that. <laughs> We're good at that. Uh, yeah, I mean, the Quran says basically, you know, that, that there's the two hands of God, the Jamal and the Jalal, which are the multiplicity, which is male and female. So, and it's all leading, pointing back to the divine unity. That's how he, um, and also the Quran often speaks of we, it, it says we, you know, we proclaim or we, and, and so a lot of mystics say that that's also a reflection of this male and female kind of um, essences, or the right hand and the left hand of God or something, so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, if you read someone like Ibn Arabi who talks about the absolute transcendence of any human quality, you really get a sense of a being that is not only in all-inclusive, I mean, it, the one, but also is so far beyond male and female that it, it's, it, it's something so un incomprehensible that, you know, I, I personally have begun using the, when I'm in my, any writing I do or any, I've been using the, the capital S slash capital H-E mm -hmm. to refer to God because it seems like shirk otherwise. It seems like um, shirk is, uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it's making partners to God to call God a male, really. It's, it's, to me, it seems like it's, it's, 
it's it's blasphemy almost to me. Um, blasphemy to have to think of God as as being a, a sexed. Um, yeah, I guess I I would agree. I've never seen God as a man or a male. Yeah. So yeah, the, the the old totally foreign, totally foreign to me. The the old you know the picture Michelangelo's you know God with the big white beard you know putting the the finger that yeah. to me is um, just a, it's incomprehensible an incomprehensible narrowing mm. of the transcendence of of Allah. I don't even. God actually seems like the name God is is sometimes hard for me to use. Well, the word God has been polluted by patriarchy. We hear God, and even if in our minds we're using it gender neutrally, you still it still has that edge of masculinity to it because of thousands of years of association. Yeah. Right. The, one of the problems I think in our one of our deep linguistic problems is that most of our languages are gendered languages and we have gendered certain human qualities uh, mm -hmm. and we I think there's a problem in talking about essentialist archetypal masculine or feminine because different cultures gender different qualities differently what's gendered masculine or male in one culture may not be in another culture but we tend to essentialize these and see them as you know the eternal feminine and the eternal masculine uh, instead if we could see them all as universal human qualities that we all have the potential to embody uh, that might be more helpful uh, because as patriarchy oppressed certain human qualities and then also associate those qualities with woman, and so oppressed qu qualities and a biological sex. But in oppressing those qualities in women, they also suppress those qualities in men. And so, you know, it, the, the wounding went both ways, essentially. And so it, I think it could be very helpful to ungender this wide range of universal human qualities and say they all belong to all of us and they all need to be integrated and balanced uniquely in each of us. Um, so there are two issues there. One, elevating the qualities that have been suppressed, and two, elevating women who have been oppressed. Oh, nice sweet book. Uh, so since we called this course, <clears throat> In the Tent of Abraham, the mystical heart of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism, one of the beautiful things about entering into the mystical heart of each of these traditions is that God as gendered becomes ridiculous in the mystical heart of each of these traditions. Um, in Judaism, the uh, mystical heart of the tradition begins, I would say, at the burning bush, right? That, that's a mystical, um, uh, Moses is having a mystical experience at the burning bush. He sees a bush that's burning and is not consumed, right? That's not, that he enters another realm of perception and out of this life-giving fire, he hears a voice that says, Moses, and calls him and says, you have a job to do in the world, which is to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And uh, when Moses says, well, Moses, as you know, doesn't want to do it. Uh, but the, the, what, uh, the key of the story that I'm getting to here is that he says, but what's your name? And as you know, the response is, which is usually translated as I am that I am that is my name for all eternity 
And a more accurate, in my opinion, translation of that Hebrew, biblical Hebrew would be, I am becoming that which I am becoming. Because it's an imperfect tense, meaning an incomplete action. It's not I am. It's not a frozen. Everything about God's name in that essence of biblical revelation, because this is it. This is the God that's going to liberate us, right? Not just from physical slavery, but it's the God of liberation. So it, it, it is, I am becoming that which I am becoming, and I will be with you. That's the answer. So everything after that, how you, everything after that, you can't, it's hard to talk about, tell a story about that experience of God. So God then starts inhabiting character in the rest of the Bible, right? But if you have, go back to the center, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to consider God anything uh, that is uh, um, definable in any way because this is the infinite ongoing unfolding of the universe. So in our synagogue, I, I landed on the, on the name for God of life unfolding, which is the one I use the most. Because uh, I figure it comes out of that I am becoming what I am becoming mm. as a way to keep, keep me on my toes. Um, and uh, uh, so in the mystical heart, I'll say a little more about that. Learning from the great Muslim philosophers, the Jewish philosophers of the Middle Ages, get all of their learning from the... They all, it's a great story. We haven't talked much about it. But Jewish philosophy, medieval philosophy is, is basically... Jewish Islamic philosophy adapted to Judaism. Uh, the, the greatest philosopher, Maimonides, also understands God as that we can only understand God by what God is not. Right? And we negate this and negate that. And, negate, and this comes again directly from his Arabic studies. Uh, and so God can't have any characteristics, period. That's the philosopher's God. And yet, the poet's God just can't deal with that. <laughs> and parallel with Maimonides in the Middle Ages and his very sort of like, um, I don't know what the right adjective is, but it's, it's spare in a way because it's, it's like, how do you worship that? You know? And so there's, there's this desire in the human heart to know God. And so the Kabbalah, the Jewish mystical system, develops in sort of wrestling with the Maimonidean tradition in the Middle Ages, in which it's, it, it's overwhelmed with 10,000 names for God, right? And God is the mother, God is Venus, God is this, God is that, God is the sun, God is... So there's two ways of having no attributes. One is to have none, the other is to have all, right? <laughs> But even in Kabbalah, it's crystal clear that the ultimate nature of God is called Ein Sof, which means without end, literally, infinite. God's name is with infinite, without end. And all those other 10,000 names just lead to that highest pinnacle where uh, uh, there is no name. So once again, in the heart of the Jewish mystical tradition, gender because there's so much gender in Kabbalah. Kabbalah is like an orgy. I mean, the world is created through great sex. 
You know, it's really, it's really a sensual, passionate system. Every week. Huh? Every week. Every week at Shabbos, every moment. And it's like, you know, the whole goal of Jewish uh, devotional activity in Jewish mystical terms is to get the feminine shechina, which is the feminine aspect of God, which is, and the masculine aspect of God, to get it on so that life can keep flowing. It's so out there. I mean, it's one of the reasons why Kabbalah was so severely suppressed by 19th century Jewish scholarship, because they couldn't believe how, how unrational it was, you know, uh, how utterly, so, so, it's, it's, so Kabbalah has been making a comeback basically starting in the 30s, but mostly since the 1960s, you know, uh, and uh, when all of a sudden it became more fashionable to get it on. Um. <laughs> you know, it's interesting because I think of the Shekinah um, and the, there's the identical word in the Islamic tradition and it um, comes in the uh, Quran when it's called the, tre it's called the Treaty of Hadabia where people, um, they, they're, they're going on Hajj, so a whole group of um, uh, Muhammad's followers, and they, but the Meccans, he still hasn't um, taken over Mecca yet. He's still, they're still in this struggle, and the Meccans are, are who, against all precedent. They're not allowed to do this because it's a pilgrimage spot that is supposed to be open to everyone, but they are, they are, t they're saying, no, you can't come. And so they make this treaty, and Mohammed knows that his followers are going to have a very tough time swallowing this. They make this treaty that they're not going to go. They're going to, they're going to hold back and they'll go again the next year. Um, and so he has them, under a tree, he has them pledge that he, they will follow him. And it's called Bayat, and it's the model for Sufi initiation. And they talk about the Sakina descending, this incredible peace descending. And again, it's gendered feminine, this incredible peace descending on all the participants who took this, took this on. And this complete turn of, you know, they were all these people kind of gearing up for war. Suddenly, <clears throat> it, the whole energy of that struggle has dissipated. And then two years, two years later, a year later, something like that, he just, he just sort of strides into Mecca and everyone surrenders and there's not a bit of bloodshed. Suddenly, the overwhelming nature of the truth um, as he's presenting it um, is seen. But this turn of n uh, this non-aggression. Um, right, so the, that, that, that sort of martial arts idea of exactly. the more you aggress, the more you'll get pushed back into, yeah. as opposed to the more you embrace and share yeah. the truth. And then, and then this, just this experience that everyone has of this deep peace descending, this deep peace called the Sakina. Ah. What the Christian scriptures call the peace that passes understanding. Mm. Because in the context, it, it isn't a peace that makes sense. It's not rational because they want to go on pilgrimage. <laughs> They've been rejected. They're, they're being withheld from the sacred place. And yet, somehow, they accept the conditions, peace descends, and then they come back the next year and enter peacefully rather than violently. Yeah. yeah. The peace that surpasses... The, that, that passes understanding. And the word <laughs> Shekhinah, 
comes from the Hebrew root, and I presume it's the same in Arabic, to dwell. Uh, in Hebrew, a shachin is your neighbor. The mishkan is the sanctuary in which the divine presence dwells. And the shachina is that aspect of the divine that we experience within and, and among us. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Uh, the imminent and the transcendent. And that's where the masculine mountain climbing and the nurturing feminine, though we can have them both, right? That's, uh, uh, but we understand that, you know, when the, the, them in, in, in those terms often. Um, what about in, so I was talking about how in Jewish mysticism, gender gets, again, it, if you're up, if you're the, if you're if you're oriented as a thought person with 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 uh, rigorous philosophical proof, then you might be a Maimonidean. You might <clears throat> want to negate anything that anyone claims is God till you get to that which has negated everything and transcends everything. That's what God is, right? Or you might be the kind of person who is a poet who who encounters it all through the multiplicity of metaphors until you pile them up so high that the, the top of it is beyond any metaphor, right? Either way, it sort of, to me, it sort of depends on one's temperament. Um, and, and, uh, the, but people, yeah, so that's, that's how I look at it. Um, but in the heart of Jewish mystical practice, masculine and feminine are just there to serve the union of everything. And God is neither, and both, right? And that's clear in Jewish mystical practice mm-hmm. and in Jewish mystical understanding of our tradition. Uh, and I wonder in Christianity and Islam how, how you would sort of wander into that description in, the, in your mystical heart of your traditions. Christianity traditionally divides the mystical path into, there, there are two ways in, there's the... Uh, the, the apophatic way or the via negativa, which is the way of stripping everything away. God is not this, God is not that. Um, the way of, oh. you know, the way of negation. And you arrive at God by process of subtraction. Uh, and then the other is the cataphatic uh, path or the, the via affirmativa, which is the way of embracing and affirming everything. And through that, you know, infinite embrace, you arrive at God in the same way as through that infinite subtraction, you arrive at God. Um, and so prayer, models of prayer unfold through each, uh, each way. Apophatic forms of prayer are forms of prayer that are about emptying. You're letting go of words, of concepts, of feelings, of images, um, stripping. And then cataphatic forms of prayer, forms like the Ignatian exercises that work with the imagination and visualization and feelings and story, um, and that both are ways into the infinite mystery of God. And often it's temperamental. Um, One way is more natural to you, but it can also be that you want to cultivate the other aspect of of your soul by um, working with forms that maybe aren't the natural current for you. So it's interesting, I have a friend who studies these things extensively, who always studies Hinduism alongside of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. It's so clearly the same contrast. Right. In the Hindu world, everything is the absolute, and the Buddhists are always subtracting and getting to emptiness for the sake of deconstructing. And he says that it's a very healthy way to study, to study both of those directions, because mm-hmm. the soul doesn't turn into, doesn't go into the hell of absolutism 
with a hell of nihilism. Right. But but Hinduism also has both. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Primarily. Right. There's there's discrimination or viveka, which is you know neti neti, not this, not this. Not this, God is not this, God is not that. And then you also have prayers like the thousand names of, of Vishnu. <laughs> and they're literally, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of attributes of God. And that's Upanishadic. So it's, there are the, both, both, both ways in and Hinduism. Also in Hinduism. Yeah. Yeah. But before yeah. we take more comments, I, I'd love to hear more about your reflections on that from your tradition. Well, you know, it's interesting because, um, and this is personal and also part of my own Sufi tradition, it may be different in your path, your Tarka. Um, oftentimes, the, one of the phrases we use a great deal in mystical practice is la ilaha illallah. And, on, and la, it, we often put la ilaha, which is no, nothing or no god, <coughs> Uh, on the out-breath, and illala on the in-breath. So, no so, God, but God? But no. God. No, no God, God, but only God. God. And the, 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 oh, um, beautiful. the impetus is actually emptying and then filling. So you empty to receive. There's certainly an emphasis in, Suf in Sufism on something called fana, which is effacement, self-effacement, um, there and it's done, you know, it's seen as a progression again in different tari because they talk about it differently, and I'll let you talk about yours. But there's fina fi sheikh, which is the effacement before your teacher. Effacement as, as you enter the path, you are effacing yourself, you're um, in not in a not in a cultish way, but in a, you know, th this is, you, you know, you're learning, you're learning um, these things and you're, you're following the words f of your teacher. Then there's fana fi rasul, fana, you're surrendering to the prophet or the prophets. You're surrendering to that um, aspect of, well, in some ways, uh, it's an aspect of oneself. And then the last stage is, Fana fi Allah, surrendering to God, and and that you know when you've reached the ability to do that, you're, you know that's again that's the kind of union that that you know we all as mystics seek. Um, but so um, there's certainly the via negativa mm -hmm. in Sufism, and it, it's often accompanied by a lot of um, ascetic practices, at least in the traditionals. Um, Sufi Tarakas, mm -hmm. but then there's also there's the 99 most beautiful names, and there's the um, you know there's a plethora of practices you know depending on what and um, most beautiful practices that um, touch on <coughs> every aspect of your being. Um, uh, uh, there's a beautiful um, text that some of the people in my order wrote called the Physicians of the Heart, where they talk about the 99 names, and it's seen as kind of like a toolbox. What is it that you need to be cultivating in yourself? What is it that you need to be addressing, um, which is very different than emptying? 
-hmm. what what aspect of of your of yourself needs to be developed mm -hmm. you know and sometimes it is the ability to let go of self but <laughs> other at other times you know the qualities of um, of gentleness or the qualities of mercy or the qualities of you know whatever it is whatever and you be. often work with very in closely with your teacher mm -hmm. to um, you know hone just what it is you your wow. practice is wow um, so um, uh, you know I've I depending on yeah I work with a, I have a few um, we call them your reads and you know the for for those pe people, depending on what their are needs they like are. people who are working with you? Yes, they work. It's and sort of like spiritual directors. <laughs> and they're called murids. They're called murids. Yes. Do you know what that word means? It means a student. It means. Um, Mershid means master. Yeah. Murid. What's master? Mershid. Mershid and murid. Yeah. And murid. Yeah. Okay, good. Thank you. Um, and so you know, depending on what the person I'm working with goes is going through, I'll give them. <laughs> you know, a particular pair of divine names um, to support their journey. Um, and... Uh, Let me just ask, for example, what would be a pair? And I'm very curious. Okay, uh, well... What do you think Jonathan needs? No, no, I wasn't asking that. <laughs> I just, I'm so curious here, two of the 99... Yeah. Uh, uh, well, let's see. Um, I've well for for example, here's here's one example. Um, one of my murids went through the death of her stepson, and so I gave we and we actually did it together. Um, I did it with her as support for forty days. Um, Yahayo Yakayum is a is a is O life, O ever living, O. Um, beyond uh, oh self subsisting the you know sort of the Chai life yeah. and kayum the resur the eternally resurrecting the re mm -hmm. eternally returning so um this this oh. is actually a traditional practice um and in fact um one of my the stories i most love is after the death of the prophet peace be upon him um some of the people were denying that he was dead. He, they were gonna, he was going to come back in 30 days. And Abu Bakr, um, uh, the next um, successor to him, said, whoever believes in Muhammad, Muhammad is dead. Whoever believes in Allah, Allah is al-hayo al-qayyum. God is ever-living, ever-self-sustaining. Self if you know one blessing in Hebrew and you're Jewish, you might know Shehechianu Vikiyamanu, Chai Vikayam, who has kept us alive and sustained us. That's yeah, yeah. very familiar. So, so that's an example of um, sort of both the emptying path and the filling a path, you know, mm -hmm. of what Beautiful. what we might what you might encounter in Sufism. I'm sure it's... What would you like to say, Rabbi? Yes, please. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those things that, like, this, this topic is something I talk about and I think about a lot because I'm writing a book about Sufi mystics, women mystics. And so it's kind of like oversaturation or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, it's... Yeah, so... Um, I don't know. Sometimes that happens to me. So, That's yeah. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting. I mean, I was just thinking about it. I feel like I'm sort of, um, I've always been like, 
kind of, I, I was a radical feminist. I am a radical feminist, and I'm a refugee from patriarchy who ended up in a very patriarchal uh, practice. So I'm not exactly sure how that happened. <laughs> but nevertheless. You're a plant. <laughs> Somehow I, I ended up in this like very patriarchy. I mean, I, I'm part of a Turkish Sufi order from Istanbul. We're an Islamic Sufi order. We're like, you know, my grand sheikh is like, this like really intense Turkish guy, you know, like I, sometimes I go there and I'm just like, wait a minute, like how did this happen? I've, I've fallen down some rabbit hole and I've just like ended up like, wow. wait a minute. <laughs> but, um, but yeah. I hope I know you a long time so I can see what happens next. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I have been told that I'm a spy, actually, by a few people, that I'm secretly like a spy for the radical feminist agenda by several male Sufis who thought that, and female Sufis. Um, so I don't, I don't know. I mean, yeah, it's, it's all very kind of like intense and uh, very present for me. I will say that I, having um, now many female teachers, um, including my Sheikha, Faria, um, it's interesting to see how a woman can sort of embody this energy and in a female body. And, and she's actually, there's a saying in our order that, that so when you take initiation into the Sufi path, you... Um, Throughout your, the course of your evolution, you sort of give birth to a child of the heart. It's called the Kal Bwaled. And what, regardless of if you're a man or a woman, your heart will give birth to a child. And that child will either be male or female. And usually you will see the child in a dream or your teacher will see the child in a dream. And my teacher had a, a male child. And that's one of the reasons why she's considered a teacher. She can be a teacher in our order. If she had had a female child, Kabwaled, she wouldn't necessarily, she'd be more hidden. She wouldn't be considered like somebody who would take an active role in teaching. Wow. Um, because patriarchy. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I know, I know. No, I know. It's working with the, the, the archetypal energies. Exactly. I know. So it doesn't matter if she was a male. Like, if she had been a man and she had taken by it and she wanted to be a Sufi master, but she had a female Kabwaled. Then they wouldn't con they wouldn't have considered her or him in this case. So it's so it's it's very interesting how these things are like they're beyond explanation. Does that like it's just beyond like what our our um, rational conscious mind tries to make these categories? And you know, my teacher is in a female body, but she's very Jalal. This is a, a word that we use. It's one of the, the divine attributes. It means majestic. Like she's very, she's a very Jalal person, and she she really does yield the sword of Laila la, la. She can just chop off your head in like five minutes, literally. So, but she there she is, like this ethereal being, you know, kind of like in this female body, like very soft and gentle. But then, when that veil comes off, you're just like, whoa! You know? There's a lot of majestic power. So, so I I I think that um, in my own experience, it's like hard for me to see like where feminine and female meet and where masculine and male like there's there I, I there my brain doesn't really function like man woman mm -hmm. masculine feminine it's like I've had enough experience in my life where I've seen things just kind of like 
flowing back and forth and sort of so it's much more fluid if that makes sense yeah you know, uh, that, that's why I think it's helpful that your tradition doesn't in English we talk about masculine qualities and feminine qualities it's very helpful instead to talk about Jamal qualities and Jalal qualities yes. because then you're getting to the essence of the energies and Whoa. not to any gendering yes yeah, so Jamal is beauty Jalal is majesty these are pairs so the 99 divine names of God that we know, and then there's many thousands more that we don't know, um, are always in pairs, like you were saying. So Rahman and Rahim, the compassionate, the merciful, which, which as you were saying last week, goes back to the Rahm, the womb, womb. Yeah. the root. Um, uh, Jamal and Jalal, you know, uh, Hayun Kayum. Uh, Kabit and Basit, the expansive, the contracted. Oh, really? um, so the 99 names are, are categorized as either often a Jalal name, a name of power, or a Jamal name, a name of beauty, of gentleness. Yeah, so like with oh. Rah Rahman and Rahim, like you would think Rahman, it's called one of the greatest names, Ya Rahman, like the compassionate. It's, it's, uh, in Sufi literature, they say it's one of the greatest names to call on if you need help or you need you know, some assistance. But Rahim is like an intense, it's like 10,000 times more intense, you know, so like really you shouldn't call on Rahim unless you like really need some like intense, compassionate, you know, fire coming, coming your way. So, um, and, and like you were saying, we as Sufis, we really use these names actively. They're not like some passive thing that you sort of like sit around and contemplate. You're supposed to use them, um, use them actively and in prayer, so. Yeah. And they always come in pairs. They always come in pairs. And well, there some, are, I mean, uh, there there are some names. For example, Yalul Jalali Wali Kram. That yeah, is a that a is name. actually has yeah. both. That's, yeah. uh, it, it's got Jalal. Actually, the word Jalal is in the name, and Ikram is a form of Kareem, or which is a word for generosity. So it's both. That is actually seen as a name that is. Holds both qualities, so it, you know, and so there are actually there are names of, and some some pairings I'm still trying to figure out like Kahar, which is one of the ferocious names of Allah. It's the dominant. Mm -hmm. It's it's often translated, which is not a good translation, but it has this fire about it. It's and and there's a sense of searing quality to it. It's also, it's all always paired with Yawahid. Um, which is a word for the one. Mm. It's a, oh, Wahid, the one. Wahid, uh -huh. the one. Um, oh, see, in our, in our tradition, see, Sufis, we have to debate yes, about it. <laughs> we have Wahid and Ahad in our. Ah. In our we, we pair have that, Wahid and Ahad. We, yeah. we have that too. Ahad in the Quran, it's always paired with. It's oh, always paired yeah. with uh, Wahid. Oh, so they're going to be different traditions. Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, and that goes back to the Ishtahad of our peer. Like, um, I said a while back that each each founding saint of a Sufi order brings um, an ishtahad, which is like an interpretation of the law and of the tradition. So, right. And then this science of divine names, of attributes of God, uh, which is, again, this idea of the multiplicity. Like, Ibn Arabi says, like, everything has, everything in creation has its own zikr, its own remembrance of God. So even the drain pipe has a zikr that even the drain pipe is remembering God with, with a name that, that 
the drain pipe calls out to God with. So this is like, you know, infinite. And that's the, the multiplicity of, of, um, of creation. What is the pairing with Yafetab? Wahab, the gift, the gift giving. So what were those two? Yafetab? Yafetab, ya Wahab, those in our, in our order. And we, we, we often do Yafetab by itself. It's, it's the opening. Yafeta like petach, like yeah, opening. If you if you want to sort of overcome some sort of block, um, or or we often as, as Sufis, if we're in a Sufi gathering and someone's going on a trip, or we're or we're, we're um, or someone's been initiated, we will just give yafeta. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll give give. It's like a blessing. Right. May way open yes, for may you. The way open, open. For you. open. And it really what's, works with traffic. What's the <laughs> <laughs> I use it all the time. <laughs> 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 yeah, but, uh, use it with traffic. Traffic, yeah. Open parking spaces. Really, <laughs> and the sea parts. What's the other half when it's not used by itself? You, you said a yah. Wahab. In our order, it's it's paired with yah wahab. Which means the gift giver, like the, the, the gift, gift giver. Yeah, gift, like the sort of bestower of gifts. Um, you, Jamal versus um, Jalal. Yeah, I would say. I mean, I I don't know, but I would think Fatal would be the Jalal. That's so interesting. Wahab would be more the Jamal. And uh-huh. and uh, I want to add one thing. Also, when we're studying Kabbalah, pe- some people get completely caught up in making sure they know exactly which is the right name for this attribute. And that's actually a mistake. Uh, because when you're talking about spiritual awakening, um, uh, having a rigid system will only limit you ultimately. So you use it yes. until you're ready for the next, yeah. I'm going to do it this, you know, with a guide, with a teacher. So, so it's important that we don't get caught up in the nitpicking of, Wait, but is it this or is it this? Because there's 10,000 infinite names. So you've all been so patient. Let's hear what some of the things you're thinking. Uh, Miriam, we'll go around. Okay. Do, in, in the traditions, do they give masculine and feminine to, do they consider that Jamal and, J- and Jalal are masculine and feminine? I mean, you were saying it's better to call it Jamal and Jalal, but in the traditions, do they say, Jalal is more feminine. Well, God is is. I mean, it's uh, it's always gender. J- Jamal and uh, Jalali names are always gendered masculine when they're referring to God. It's so, and and God is referred to all, always. So it's not really masculine or feminine um, so much. I mean, sometimes they make those distinctions, but interesting. That would be so. Talking about masculine and feminine attributes is not something that's done internally in this tradition, particularly. Not particularly. I mean, but that's but, but all sorts of it. metaphor, all sorts of metaphors do take place, and, and in fact, oftentimes the shake they talk about the shake's breasts and the yeah. The, there's a lot of the, sexual imagery and Sufism and yeah, and and it's often the, the the shake in particular, the relationship between the shake and the the Murshid and the Murid is often seen as this mother and child, or it's just that you lover and we beloved. We keep saying that these that you're in a patriarchal yeah. tradition, oh. and then when when we get down to it, you're saying it's not really it's 
it's both. Mm -hmm. The concepts are not necessarily patriarchal, but the reality on the ground is the ground. can be quite patriarchal, oh, especially you, in, you. in a yes, different you're gonna get your tradition. Turn. <laughs> okay, Sharon. Thank you. Um, so everything is or is not. You inhale, you exhale. And at the beginning, you also said everything is evolving. So it seems like we need to come to a place where feminists and men alike need to acknowledge that through time, since time does play a part in all of this in our physical body world, mm -hmm. where for some reason it has been necessary for it to be patriarchal and let go of beating each other up about it and saying, for some reason in history, what a 200 BC, whatever number you're at, as these religions evolved, mm -hmm. it was necessary for some reason in human evolution to have it be the way it's come out. And now, for some reason, we're willing or ready or slowly evolving away from it. But somehow acknowledging it and saying that had to be like that for whatever reason lets us let go of it so we can move forward. Is that what I'm hearing? You can certainly see it as a necessary part of the evolution of human consciousness. Necessary, why? Because it happened. <laughs> you know, it's part of the unfolding. Um, but you're able to take a dynamic evolutionary view of history that says things can change. People who have a static view of history say that these roles are God-given and imposed, and to try to operate in any other way is to go against the divine order. Um, so that's where the clash comes in. Because yeah, if we could all just say, yeah, patriarchy was necessary, that was part of our unfolding, and you know, no hard feelings, we'll move forward. <laughs> but the battle comes at the point where some people are in this emerging consciousness, and some people are still holding down this system, and they clash. You know. I, I want to just actually say something about um, in uh, about Islam in this context because when Islam came along, patriarchy was pretty well established. You know, Judaism emerged when there was still some struggle between the old. Not clear. Not no? there. There may have been goddesses uh -huh. in those cultures, but there's uh -huh. no evidence that they weren't patriarchal okay. societies. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean, look at India. India is a perfect example. It's, yeah. it's one of the most patriarchal societies on the planet. And they love you their, still they have, have goddesses. goddesses. And they love their goddesses. So no, okay, no, no. Okay. Uh, I, I'm convinced that that patriarchy predates uh, Judaism by a long, long time. But uh, but I, what I wanted to say about Islam was actually is actually that the um, uh, in a way. Muhammad was, an, for his time, was an incredible feminist. He, um, the, the, he actually upset the patriarchy in, in, um, in the Jahiliya, in the pre-Islamic state. And um, I, I didn't last very long, but um, many of the revelations of the Quran were actually about how to treat women fairly. Mm -hmm. And it's an actual, actually as, you know, certainly for a document of its time and in its place, it was radical. Establishing um, it, rights that didn't exist. Exactly. And so, um, so, and then what happened was custom and tradition and the culture took over. It, it was before its time, in a sense. So, um, 
It's a, it, it, there are passages in the Quran that say that make it very clear that women and men are spiritually equal, where they say believing men and believing women. Uh, met I, so I just opened to this. <laughs> Let me read it. So this is okay. So this is one of the wives of the Prophet, a later wife, because the Prophet Muhammad, although for Muslims, you're allowed legally to have four wives. Okay, and, and believe me, this was like a huge um, improvement for women because, first of all, um, women, men before the coming of Islam to the Arabian Peninsula were allowed to have limitless amount of wives and female slaves, okay? So just picture that. And uh, Islam said you can only have four wives and you have to provide for them equally. So like if wife number one has a house, wife number two has to have the same type of house and three and four, okay? So that's like a huge improvement for women, which is you know hard for us obviously to swallow. But so the prophet though himself had many many more wives, partially because of um, trying to cement tribal alliances. Some women lost their husbands in battles, and because it was a tribal system, the prophet would marry that woman because otherwise, in a tribal system, if you don't have a husband or a father or an uncle to protect you, you're basically as good as dead. So this is from one of his wives, Hind Um Salama. He, she asked him one day, she said, she's called the shaper of the Quran because she actually asked the prophet this question and then a revelation was received right away. So she's called the shaper of the Quran. Um, she asked the prophet Muhammad why Allah did not say men and women in the Quran but only said men, only addressed men directly. Is the Quran only for men, she said. At that moment, the following verses were revealed, and this is what you were just saying. Uh, men, so this is Allah speaking in the Quran. Men and women who have surrendered, believing men and believing women, morally obligated men and morally obligated women, truthful men and truthful women, enduring men and enduring women, humble men and humble women, men and women who give in charity, men who fast and women who fast, men and women who guard their private parts, men and women who remember God often, for them God has prepared forgiveness and a sublime compensation. And that's in chapter 30, 30, uh, 35 of the Quran. Wow, so that's clarifying. <laughs> so that pretty much encompasses everything like, that we could possibly do, like, spiritual you know, practice and whatnot. So yeah, it's right there in the Quran. So you can't really, I mean, it's interesting. I feel like sometimes I, it's, it's, it's kind of a helpful thing to separate Arabian culture and Islamic culture from the religion of Islam. Because obviously if we look at <coughs> Arabian culture, you know, there's a lot that we could find fault in for sure. But if you look at Islamic religion and the re revealed uh, tradition as it was received by Muhammad, I think it's actually very feminist. And, and nobody gets stoned in the Quran. Wow. Right, the Quran, Quran does, has no, no ruling not, for stoning. That is not a Quranic... That's interesting. Wow. Although it is, of course, it in the, the Torah, stoning. But, yes, and the rabbis outlawed it. Right. Uh, stoning, by the time of the Roman era, the, those punishments were considered to be cruel and unusual punishment, and the rabbis basically phased them out. So there's been no stoning in Judaism either for, uh, well... Well, there is stoning in Islam, yes. but it's not Quranic. Oh, God, that's fascinating. Okay. Um, uh, uh, Harris, and then...
Zach, yeah. Yeah, forgive me if I'm saying wrong. I don't know about my own religion, but I know um, with Christianity, you can give honor, you can name your child Jesus. Of the 99 names, can you name your children any of those 99 names? Yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Jamal, you know, is a very common Muslim name. Oh, that's an and, interesting, and, that's a and, great question. And Muhammad is a very common yeah, name for, for Muslim men. But, but he's not God. Right. No. no. But in Christian, did you say in, Christ, in Christianity, it's it's very common in certain parts of Christian culture to name your child Jesus. Yes, um, not in, in, most English or American uh, Christians don't do that, but Latino Christians name their kids Jesus like crazy, you know. So it's, it depends on the culture. So they have more to, in, in Islam, you have more to choose from. <laughs> well, in, in Christianity, yeah. it's very common to name your children after one of the men or women of the scripture or one of the saints. Yeah. So Matthew, you know, Thomas, John, Mary, oh. like those are very common names. And then you celebrate not only your birthday, but your name day, which yeah. is your saint's yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. Oh, and then, well, I'm thinking of people like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, yeah. you know, yeah. Kareem means uh, generosity. Generosity, yeah. yeah. That was a good question. Thank you. Question about the 99 names. So the Jamal and Jalal qualities are the pairings from the 99 names, right? Yeah. Where does, and, and they differ, the actual pairings differ depending on the tra which Sufi tradition we're speaking of. Yeah. yeah. What is the. Um, uh, there, is, there is a kind of a commonly accepted pairing, so that are kind of universal throughout the Muslim world, but yeah. With some minor variations. Yeah. How do the pairings originate? Like, where where is it written that like, this goes with this? The Quran. Oh, yeah. so, oh, so the Quran says these are the two qualities that kind of belong. Well, together. what what happens is there will be there are many many verses in the Quran where, as a seal, they'll say they'll say blah 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 for Allah is, Kareem and you know they'll it, it, they'll say then they'll pair two qualities, um, uh, Allah, Ali u. Uh, Ali ul Adim, or uh, Rahman and Rahim, or I mean, many many verses are kind of sealed. They end like that. So the spiritual and mystical tradition in in Islam, just like in Judaism and just like in Christianity, draws from our scriptures to to develop the systems they want to develop using the vocabulary of their inherited text. It's interesting to think that almost all of the chapters of the Quran begin with Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim, which is in the name of God, the most compassionate, the most merciful, which is like in the name of God, the womb, the womb, essentially. You know, that's like almost every chapter of the Quran begins with that. So it's uh, kind of interesting. Uh, Martha, you were waiting, and then we'll come oh, back yes, around okay. this way. And Joan, did you want to? No, OK. Go ahead, Martha. Um, well, I've been thinking about um, patriarchy a lot, because I'm reading a perfectly beautiful book called Sapiens. It's, um, maybe other people have read it. Did Just tell people it? what it is. What? Tell people what it is. It's a history of our species on the earth. And uh, it examines our forager ancestors who apparently lived much healthier lives than we did. They got fewer diseases, which came from animals. So he's examining everything that happened in the course of the last uh, 75,000 years, and he's, I'm reading the part about patriarchy now, in which he examines all the rationales that have been put forward f 
for why it happened this way, such as men are stronger, they were in wars. Well, the women could have planned the, uh, the wars. Men, uh, women needed men because they were raising children. Well, in some matriarchal societies or among some primates, the women help each other out. They take care of each other's children. He goes through every possibility that's been put forward as to why patriarchy developed, and he comes, he really comes up empty-handed. But now I seem to be hearing from you, and tell me if I'm wrong, that patriarchy went hand-in-hand hand or was cemented by the monotheistic religions. Uh, you know, it's always, a, it's always a given, a take and attention, so, you know, a prophet emerges, something emerges out of that, that argues within itself, and something emerges out of, you know, it's not, it's not, I think, cut and dried. And I think often the values that are brought by prophetic figures are ahead of the culture in which they're planted. And then the muscle memory of the culture pulls back. Mm -hmm. So Jesus, like the prophet Muhammad, uh, in the Gospels is, is, we could say, like you said, that he was a feminist. There are women in the close uh, group of followers. Um, they're mentioned throughout the Gospels. Mary Magdalene is one of them mentioned. Um, but the sort of master story focuses in on the 12 male disciples and kind of forgets the women who were there. And it says, the, uh, the scriptures even say that the women were supporting him in his ministry. They were, you know, financially backing him, making this possible. Um, uh, so I think the traditions do both. They sometimes bring new expansive values, but then sometimes they also reinforce, you know, it's not, I don't think it's an easy black and white thing. Um, uh, and I, I want to respond to that one too. Mm. Yeah. May I? Um, so, as an avid reader of uh, feminist thought and sort of reconstruction, feminist reconstructions of early history in the 70s and 80s and 90s, I realized I had to, that that the Bible became the the Hebrew Bible became the essentially the fall guy, the enemy in these stories, which were attempts at reconstructing prehistory, but we have very 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 little evidence, so that there are stories that are being constructed for this purpose, and I don't say this harshly, to remember a time when mm -hmm. it was all okay so that we can recreate that time now. And so you have to have the, 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 the golden age and the fall so that we can recreate that golden age now. And that was a lot, that's what a lot of those histories that I read, that's the, the trajectory they lay out, if you follow me. Except that it doesn't hold up. And uh, it turns out that the Bible was being made into a bad guy as the source of patriarchy. And um, uh, as far as, so that doesn't, that's not to absolve, it's not, but, but I'm telling like made into the bad guy, mm -hmm. right? And at this point in my own like speculation on how we got this way, for me it's that we're primates. And when you look at primate uh, societies all over the world, there are some exceptions, but mostly the <laughs> It's what primates do. And so for me, the feminist revolution 
is to see if we humans are capable of transcending mm -hmm. that inherent sort of wiring by because we have that have that consciousness and capability rather than retrojecting back to some imagined golden age before we screwed it up. Which presumes... Does, does that make sense, everybody? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which it's presumes like, an evolutionary worldview. If you don't yeah. have an evolutionary worldview, then none of that makes any sense at all. So, so, and the reason I need to say that is that for any of us that have basically cut our teeth on these kinds of attempts at feminist reconstructions of ancient history, um, they, um, they, they're, not, they're not history. They're a mythology. Yeah. Um, and if imagining that golden age helps, all the better, but not at the expense of, because I can then, I can make a defense and apology for, which I'm not going to spend your time on right now, for all the ways the Hebrew Bible invents the idea that all humans are created in God's image. For example, male and female, it says so in Genesis. Right? These are incredibly, out, in, for, in that ancient society, it's revolutionary that invents the Sabbath on which you're not allowed to make anyone who works for you work. They're as free as you that day because you're all created in God's image. In other words, the Bible is a revolutionary societal text. And um, all of that can be just washed away in the desire to find the cause of our problems and then pin it on patriarchy and then pin that on the Bible and you'll forgive me but I always smell the uh, scent of anti-semitism residual intellectual anti-semitism within all of that as well so I think in a, on our topic today that's an important sort of excursion for me to make with you right now if you follow what I'm saying so thanks for listening to that it's very important um, let's see there are hands so Nancy and uh, remind me of your name Hi, Luanda, and Jasmine, and Jay, and what's your name? Myra. Myra and Ellen. We'll just go through that bunch, okay? I'm going to try to get this together. Um, King Solomon, who was, David was his father, and part of also Jesus, I mean, it goes the whole way like that. Um, he, God would have given him anything in the world. He said, give me anything you want, and he said he wanted Wisdom. wisdom. So just and we heard what wisdom story, was with all right, those things. So going back to that again and trying to figure out, the, I mean, I'm just trying to figure this out, putting them both together. So the male qualities are the things that we were talking about. And the female qualities from, from that, from the beginning there, if you think about from the ancestors of everybody, that the women, she, is the wisdom. So if, I don't I just, I can't really figure it together, but I mean, after King Solomon, so he wanted the, the, the main woman, he wanted the, the feminine, you know, the other part to have in his being. And, you know, and then, and these are the people, I don't know any, I don't know how many more descendants we know in the Bibles after Jesse, David, Solomon, I don't know, you know, but it's interesting how that's the one who says the wise. That's the, that's the one. And that whole crew. Thank you. And Shlomo's name means peace. Solomon comes from Shlomo, which means Shalom. So his name means peace. Uh, 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 Joan and Luanda. Yeah, I, I think it's useful uh, to um, indicate that, that um, like Rabbi Jonathan has, has always uh, reminded me that um, 
the poetics of the Bible is um, that it that it is a poetics above all that it's not meant to be necessarily or can it be a real history? Um, and I used to take it so literally. I was trained to think that. I remember I was quite well formed adult before I suddenly realized that maybe there wasn't really an Abraham. Isaac and Jacob in that order uh, as parents and child and and that you know some of those things I took so literally suddenly opened up this crack in the earth for me but um, as a poetics then it really does inform us if we just take it um, to 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 generate especially uh, the poetics of Judaism uh, in that the aspects are male and female created he them. Probably the, the, the other very revealing thing for me was to really look at Genesis and see that it was two stories of creation and that the very first one really did indicate that both male and female, meaning masculine and feminine, meaning whatever all of that means, it, within each of us. And it started to liberate me from the, the, the very patriarchal influences that had kept me quite suppressed. And, and, and I valued fem, that feminist turn too um, because it helped me feel more whole like I wasn't the second child the the lesser uh, children child of a lesser God or whatever you know at being female and it's still a struggle it is a struggle and uh, it, I'll get to Luana next but I, I just had a thought that I want to share it is a struggle um, each of us described how we see in our tradition founding principles that are liberatory, that are subversive to the standing order, mm -hmm. right? That are, and they're really there. And yet at the same time, we're the keepers of a tradition. And so we have the struggle. It's a, I think there's an inherent struggle in both wanting, in, in both, in being keepers of a tradition, but then remembering the liberatory spark mm -hmm. that is at the center of that each tradition, right. and um, you just can't tie that up neatly in a package. Uh, but, but I know that for each of us, we want to be the voices of the liberatory center. But there, and so maybe, so Rabia, you're where you are. You're just where you need to be, you know. And, <laughs> uh, you know I know, you I wanna, know. Thank you. Yeah, <laughs> you just want to tag the very for much, it's, it's, it's not, hormone, not history, but hormones. At its heart, and if we look at it that way, that it's not linear, but very circular, and very much in our bodies, and we all have both levels of those hormones, different levels, but of, of both types of hormones, and, and and maybe that's that's the shift we need to to do in our speaking, in our, in our because I have that struggle too, as, as one who very much espouses Judaism and claims it, and 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 declares it, and people sometimes react, and I have to then defend and or explain. Um, I'm explaining that it's a living tradition, and thank goodness right. you've given me very much this God as, as life unfolding right. image that an evolutionary understanding of our traditions rather than a static one. And, and, and very much, Leslie, though, that, that it ties me to my my living. When if God is life unfolding, then my life is God unfolding. <laughs> That's right. It's a great term, and it's beautiful. I thank you. Oh, thank you, Rabia. You were going to say. Um. So Ibn Arabi, who's this mystic, great mystic of Andalusia, he speaks about the wadat al-wujud, the oneness of being. Wujud is like the entire creation and all of the being that we are. We are being and Allah is being. So, um, and the way I see it is 
if you're if you know you're living inside this living being and you are a piece of this living being then are you going to focus your are you going to call upon and 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 invite the energies of love wadud you know this very feminine like yeah wadud it's like a very tender oh. name oh, of god do my love my beloved um you know or are you going to call on rahman or rahim or are you going to call on you know jabbar and kahar which is like the compeller and the triumphant one. These are like very Jalal names that are like, you know, really like that lightning sword of Lai Lai Lala that I was speaking about that just sort of like, you know, if you use those names, like, I mean, it says in Sufi treatises to be extremely careful if you ever use those names because you don't know what's going to happen. So, um, so personally, I would be wanting to call on these more sort of like loving, beautiful names just to invoke those qualities. Now, somebody else might be called on to invoke these other qualities of God. But So it's not necessarily for me like a judgment. It's just sort of like where are you, what, what sea are you swimming in? Like, What do you want to be working with? Um, because Sufism and Islam is, is like a very active practice. It's not like passive, like that we're sort of sitting back and like, you know, Allah is just doing this and that to us. I mean, that's at a very high level, like you were saying, like, like when you have lost yourself, when you've been annihilated in God, then yes, you're, comp you're passive and you're just sort of like a corpse in the hands of the corpse washer, you know. Wow. But most of us are not at that point yet. So we're just, we're still trying to work with what we've been given. So um, that's really how I see it. It's Thank you. This sort of, you know, like you're um, in your tool shed and you have your tools in front of you and like, are you going to pick up, you know, the uh -huh. uh, crucible or the, you know, sword or whatever. So that's... Oh, thank and you. Some, I'm not sure how true this is, but um, I'll say it anyway. Some, someone said that, the, I mean, because, as an evolution, Sufism came to the, you know, came to the West and because we're a psychological culture, it's actually somewhat unusual for people to have relationships with their sheikhs in the Eastern cultures that are so very psychological. Wow. You know, like, so, you know, Sufism as it's come, the, the Physicians of the Heart was written by an Arabic scholar, a the peer of the, of the Ruhaniyat, my Sufi order, and, and someone, a couple of people who, who are psychologists, and that's their primary orientation. And um, this whole notion of um, using the 99 names of God to work on actual psychological um, issues may be a, you know, a, recent, a more recent evolution. And so I, 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 I'm bringing it up because the relationships between these names and um, our, our traditions are evolving. Mm -hmm. And because we're evolving. Because yes, because as as a culture and as I mean, the fact that we're sitting here is an evolution. Right. <laughs> so right. so um, I, I just as we talk about these things, um, I I just I think Jonathan's right talking about them in an evolutionary way. It's it's changing, and the role of women. I, I you know in many most places in this country. Women do not lead prayer in mosques. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. It may be one or two in the country. Oh boy. Mm -hmm. um, so, but you know, in graduate school, I was I was in mixed prayer um, all the time. You know, it in there are it's becoming more. But right. we're behind. You know, we the. Reformed Judaism, how long ago was that? Well, it, the westernization of uh, this was in the 19th century. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right, that's when. Yeah, when we're. But the feminization, the feministization of Judaism is uh, only starting with women's suffrage in the early 20th century. So, so it's. We're, we're all part of a much larger cultural forces. Yeah. 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 Luanda, what did you want to share? Uh, yes, I certainly understand the struggle so well, being Southern and having a Lebanese father. Um, it's been, uh, it's, it's on my mind all the time. Um, I'm wondering, well, I'm assuming that all of the texts that you're referring to, including the beautiful texts about wisdom, um, all the principles even, the concepts, the, the dualism, that all of these texts were conceived of and written about and created by male writers. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering right. if there are, in the traditions, the archaic <coughs> traditions and the mythic tra traditions, if there are traditions of women writers who conceived of things differently. That is such a great I point. I'm so glad you brought that up. Go ahead, Rabia. So I'm going to read a few. I brought this book. This is Ibn al-Arabi. He uh, wrote this book called uh, Sufis of Andalusia. And he, in this book, he, he, it's a, a biographical um, dictionary, sort of, of all the different Sufis. That From he, when was it written? Um, Recently. No. No, no, no Ibn Arabi. Oh, this is Ibn Arabi. Yeah, Ibn Arabi doing a... Oh, okay, 13th yeah, yeah. century, okay. And these are all um, Sufis that he visited or, and met with himself. And some of his primary teachers were women, right? Yes, so these are some of his teachers, actually. Um, so I'll just read. These are just like little biographical excerpts. Shems, mother of the poor. She lived at Marchena of the Olives, where I visited her often. Among people of our kind, I have never met one like her with respect to the control she had over her soul. In her spiritual activities and communications, she was among the greatest. She had a strong and pure heart, a noble spiritual power, and a fine discrimination. She usually concealed her spiritual state, although she would often reveal something of it to me in secret because she knew of my own attainment, which gladdened me. She was endowed with many graces. I had considerable experience of her intuition and found her to be a master in the sphere. Her spiritual state was characterized chiefly by her fear of God and his good pleasure in her, the combination of the two at the same time in one person being extremely rare. Then she, and this is another excerpt, excerpt where um, he's speaking at, about her, but from another text. I first met her when she was in her 80s. One day, she and I were with, uh, Al-Mawri and I were with her. Suddenly, she looked towards another part of the room and called out at the top of her voice, Ali, return and get the handkerchief. When we asked to whom she was speaking, she explained that Ali was on his way to visit her and that on his way, he had sat down to eat by a stretch of water. When he got up to resume his journey, he had forgotten his handkerchief. 
This is why she had called out to him, and he had gone back and retrieved the kerchief. Oh. Ali was at that time well over a league away. I don't know how long a league is. But after an hour, he arrived, and we asked him what had happened to him on his way. He told us that he had stopped at some water on the way to eat, and that he had then got up and left his handkerchief behind. He went on to tell us that he had, had, he had then heard Our Lady Shems calling out to him to return and get it, which he had done. She also had the power to voice the thoughts of others. Her revelations were true, and I saw her perform many miracles. So this is Ibn al-Arabi, which is, he's considered the greatest sheikh of Islam ever, okay? And he's not telling a a legend that he heard. He's telling about an experience he had. Exactly. Oh, that's so cool. And there's a few more here, but... Uh, if we had more time, I'd read but them. But to her point, it wasn't written by a woman. It was written by a man. Right, so... But actually, there is the, the, poem, the Rabia poems. Yeah, Rabia al So there is yeah. some writing. Yeah. Uh, uh, Lenore uh, mentioned to me, Lord, that uh, Rabia is named for a great uh, founding saint of Sufism. Rabia al yeah. And, uh, and her writings exist which is rare, because we're dealing with a situation where men wrote all the scriptures, as far as we know. The the first woman woman to write a book in English, in the English language, was Julian of Norwich in the the 14th century. And so we have her mystical treatise, um, her revelations of divine love. And so in the English language, the only extant manuscript we have from a woman doesn't arrive until the 14th century. Um, as far as early Christian texts, wow. still most of them are probably... Now, that's not... The, the, there are other women mystics writing in other languages right. other than English. So, you know, there's, um, she's not the, the first woman Christian mystic that we have on record in her own words, but she's the first one in English. Um, her name is Julian of Norwich. Um, and Julian of Norwich actually frequently in her writings she refers to God as both mother and father and she refers to Jesus repeatedly as Jesus our mother Really. and she applies um, female imagery to Christ she talks about the wounds that Christ received on his side at the cross she talks about nursing from his wound as, a, as an infant nurses at a, uh, its mother's breast um, so she's often mixing sort of gender metaphors and images in her writings and you see that in other Christian saints um, uh, all throughout it's common to use that kind of mother imagery and one of the images that became popular in uh, medieval times for Christ was the mother pelican because it was believed uh, according to legend that the mother pelican would tear her own flesh from her breast to feed her children um, and so that becomes an image of the sort of self-sacrificial nature of Christ, um, feeding with his own body and blood. But if you go all the way back to the earliest years of the church, we don't have manuscripts that we know were written by women. Some scholars have proposed that the Gospel of Luke may have actually been written by a woman. Uh, it's, it's a sort of minority opinion. But Luke's Gospel of the four Gospels is the one that shows the most concern with women, and the oppressed and children. There are more references in Luke's gospel uh, right. than but, the other three. But then Luke might have just been that kind of guy. Right, right. Um, <laughs> but what what we do what we do see in the er, what we do see in the early centuries of the church is that uh, women were disciples. Even in the canonical gospels, we see women alongside Jesus, and we see women holding really strong roles of authority. 
and particularly when Jesus is arrested, when he's betrayed and arrested, the male disciples all flee. They all run. And it's a small group of female disciples who stay beside him. They're present at the story, at the crucifixion. Um, Mary Magdalene is named, I think, explicitly in three of the four Gospels as being there. She's named at the tomb, along with other women, as the first witness to the resurrection of Jesus, and she's given the title Apostle to the Apostles. So you see um, these women forming a really core group that move through the whole story, and their text, I brought a couple, um, a couple of texts from the probably second century in the early church. There's one that was found in the late 1800s called the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, maybe early 1900s. Um, and it shows the tension in the early church between the male and female leadership in the church. And so while it may not be recording actual historical conversation, it is recording a memory within the early church that, that some Christians trace their apostolic authority to women disciples and that there was tension and opposition from those who traced their authority to male disciples. So this is uh, some of the closing lines of this Gospel of Mary Magdalene. Let's see. Okay, so Mary is conveying a spiritual vision she's been given by Jesus, and this is after Jesus' crucifixion. And Peter responds negatively. After consideration, Peter's response was similar. Would the Savior speak these things to a woman in private without openly sharing them so that we too might hear? Should we listen to her at all? Can you read that again? Yes. Would, would, Would Jesus speak these things to a woman in private without openly sharing them with us, that we might hear, we men. Would, would the rabbi have actually taught a woman apart from men? Um, should we listen to it or, or her at all? And did he choose her over us because she is more worthy than we are? Then Mary began to weep, saying to Peter, My brother, what are you thinking? Do you imagine that I have made these things up myself with my heart or that I am lying? Speaking to Peter, Levi also answered him, another of the twelve core disciples, Peter, you have always been quick to anger, and now you are questioning her in exactly the same manner, treating this woman as if she were an enemy. If Jesus considered her worthy, who are you to reject her? He knew her completely and loved her faithfully. We should be ashamed of ourselves. As he taught us, we should be clothed instead with the cloak of true humanity, and following his command, announce good news without burdening it with further rules or laws he himself did not give us. So you see that Jesus had uh, a very egalitarian sort of feminist approach in his ministry where he's teaching women, including them in the teaching, giving them teaching authority, and that the male apostles sort of resist that. Um, Again, is this a record of an actual conversation? Perhaps not. It's a record of an actual tension within the church, though. That's right. What happened to that gospel? Um, it fell into, you know, it was never canonized. So we have surviving manuscript copies, but it didn't become part of Orthodox scripture. So, so yeah, so um, I think it's important to say that, so we do this excavating in our traditions to find hints of where women's voices were heard. Mm-hmm. But the overarching reality 
is that that requires excavation, right? Right, and that's our situation. So I personally, I think this is an important thing to say. That's why the evolutionary model is so important to me, because now we're going to create the next iteration, the next, the next life of our traditions, where and they're going to be different because women's voices are going to be heard beside men's. And women teachers are going to be heard beside men. And so something new is going to emerge. It won't be brand new. It'll be the next. But that, I feel like, is what we have to do now. And part of what we do is look into our tradition to uh, find um, Things source like material that we can build on. But, but there's no denying that we have a tradition that is that has been passed down to us in the voices of men and in the writings of men. Jasmine and then Jay. Okay, I don't know if I can put this together, but it started with you saying that leadership in Islam comes a lot through this dream of having a male or a female baby. And so it just got me thinking about this idea that um, it's sort of seen as a divine sign so if all the leaders are men, 99% of the leaders are men, so it's almost like only they are receiving the divine sign of the male baby, and the Pope is always a man, and he's the, you know, the gods, and rabbis are mostly men. So then, so Well, rabbis are men until the yeah. 1970s. Right, so then there's Which this idea that God is choosing, <laughs> God is choosing men to represent God, because, and then, so then what happens, let's say, in, in this tradition, if a woman has a dream that she's had a male baby, and she comes and says, "Oh, I've had this divinate, you know, this divine sign that I'm supposed to be a leader," then would the 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 male sheikhs say, "Oh, well, my dream was that you had a female baby," so no, like like how how much do you spend? <laughs> you know, like, right. I don't know, but I'm saying like we're, we're, like yeah. How is that respected? Like, how are divine signs? Are they respected as being like the truth, or then are they questioned because a woman came forward and said, "I've had a male child ba uh, dream, and I, I, I want to be now a sheikh, or I want to be a leader." You know, how is that viewed versus is it questioned? You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I was curious because that's a very interesting way to mm -hmm. to to decide if somebody is going to be a leader or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, everything in our order is decided that way. Like, even if they're going to decide the next grand shake, then there's certain elders in our community that um, are chosen to have dreams. Everything's done via dreams in our order. So, wow. So, like, if five of the ten elders have a dream that this one person's the next grand shake, and five of the other people have a different dream, then they have to ask again and do the whole thing. It's called... Um, istikara prayer. It's a certain prayer you do when you need to, it's like um, asking a question and then you do a certain prayers and then you receive a dream. And so they would do the whole process all over again. So it's very similar. But, but I, mean, think, I think your question um, is, comes down to cultural, mm -hmm. a cultural setting. Because, for instance, I have been going to Turkey for many years as a Western woman uh, and visiting my grand sheikh and while in my last visit when I was there, you know, I, I, I've been going for years and I go very easily and I just walk right into the men's section and I go and I sit and I have a private audience with the Grand Sheikh 
And this like seems, I know I'm unusual, but I mean, I know, but it doesn't seem like totally foreign to me, right? So on my last visit, I was there and this wife of one of the, um, this Turkish woman, uh, who's the wife of one of the sheikhs in our order, happened to be in the waiting room to see the grand sheikh. Actually, she wasn't even going to see the grand sheikh. She was just waiting for her husband, <coughs> who's a sheikh, who was in there having a meeting and she was waiting outside. And she took, so, so this is downstairs, um, just to give you a little geography to see what I'm talking about. This is on the first floor, which is the men's floor of our, of our, uh, our Durga, our Tekka, which is like the Sufi lodge, the temple in Istanbul. The women are upstairs. So she told me in that meeting room, inside the men's section, where I go, quite, I've been quite often, that that was the first time she's ever been in the men's section, ever. This is the closest she ever got. She's been a Sufi. She's been part of our order for like 25 years or something and married to a sheikh. But because she's Turkish, there's a totally different set of rules that apply to her. And I talk about this a lot in my book because it's something I have to be really clear about, that I'm considered an honorary man as a Western woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, So wow. I've been granted privileges that these women that are from these cultures are never, were never and would never be granted. So that's like something I have to be like very careful about and always keep in the back of my mind that I've been given, given privileges and access that women from these cultures would never receive. So that's like... It's a gift and it's also a burden because it's like, but you know. But it's why it's important you write a book. Right, yeah, and, 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 and that's why I'm doing this because I feel like, well, I've been given this gift because I'm an honorary man, but then like, you know, so it's, it's like this very, it's very. Um, well, what if you had a dream that you, you had a male baby? And so that you're meant to, and that you're meant to be a leader in this in your. I have actually. Right. Yeah. So and I was given permission. So, so you're given yeah. permission. But I'm a Western woman. I'm not Turkish. So. If, so so much of this is culturally determined. And traditionally, women could be sheikhs, but they would right. only teach women. Exactly. And the, the, I just want to say really quick. So Rabia al Dawiya lived in the eighth century, and she, she had male and female disciples. So she was kind of like she was very much like an anomaly because mostly, you know, female sheikahs would have female students. So, but it, all these Sufi sheikahs that Ibn al-Arabi is talking about also had male disciples. So, so even though the, the, the historical record says that women have only led prayer for women, women have only taught women, but my book is full, and my research, I've found example after example of that not being the case. Mm -hmm. So like at some point you just have to start asking yourself like is this just like a, a case of sort of like what is accepted, so what people talk about, and then what is actual practice? You know, like there's a discrepancy between the two. Or was, or was, this, or was this suppressed? <laughs> or was it suppressed and continues to be suppressed? It goes, actually, just, yeah. it, it goes all the way back to the Quran. There's a chapter in the Quran where they go through Prophet after prophet, it's I think it's called the prophet, and at the very end, Mary is mentioned. And yes, Mary is a prophet line, in the Quran. Whole yeah. line of prophets, and yet many Muslim scholars say Mary is not a prophet. Yes, even, even though, though the angel of Revelation appears right. to her, even are though familiar with she this. meets all the standard, all the qualities. She's in the list. Right. Sorry. But but she can't be one because she's a but woman. She's a so woman. then you make right. all these reasons for right. why yes. it doesn't apply to her. Yes. Right. Yes. I'm familiar with that. So everyone, everybody, we are um, 
Uh, we're almost out of time. Um, so, I, first of all, I really want to apologize to people who have valid and beautiful things to share, and I, we couldn't hear them this week. We have one more meeting. Uh, yes, we are not meeting next week. I will be at a retreat next week, and so we are meeting for our final class on January 24th. Not the 17th, yes, the 24th. Um, and uh, we'll keep envisioning this uh, um, expression in the tent of Abraham where we becomes the tent of Abraham and Hagar, Abraham and Sarah. It's like that's what we have to do now. Um, so again, my apologies for people who didn't get to share what they wanted to share, but I thought perhaps we can end it, so Rabia, Rabia was like an honorary man, just like you in her cult. <laughs> Maybe that's why you have that name. Well, I so, mean, yeah, I, but the, the question about, you know, women writing, too, is also like Rabia herself didn't write these poems. Most women were illiterate at this time, so. They were like taken this, down from her, right? Yeah, they right. were, they were dict, you know, she, people would dictate, I mean, um, not dictate, but uh, scribe, like a scribe, right. take down her words, so. This is also another issue that we deal with with this kind of work, is that women were mostly illiterate, and um, so anyway, but let's, so this is Rabi al-Dawiyah. What, what century again? Eighth century Eighth. Iraq, Basra, from Basra in Iraq. Eighth century Iraq. No, wait, she's yeah, ninth century. That is eight century. That's eighth century. Eighth century, yeah. Let me just say this about her, which is so striking and so when you think of where Islam is, when you think of what's actually happening, and when she is born, they have, there's no Baghdad, right? And they are just starting to move north. They've taken Jerusalem in 636. So think of where everything is. And this woman almost comes out of nowhere, right? And becomes the singer of these extraordinary songs, which is what happened. She didn't, they were sung, yeah. right? And you're right, somebody had to write them yeah. for her. And people flocked to her. But if you think how young... And she was a slave, be, too. She, she was sold into slavery because her family was so too. poor. Yes. Wow. And the reason why she was finally liberated by her master yes. was because uh, he one night uh, he woke up in the middle of the night and saw in the courtyard that she was praying and there was um, a lantern suspended above her head, like sort of divinely mm. held there so that mm. she could pray and, and many other things. So he finally uh, realized... Who was in his midst and decided to free her? So then, to conclude, let's have Rabia share the words of Rabia, the song of Rabia. Your hope in my heart is the rarest treasure. Your name on my tongue is the sweetest word. My choicest hours are the hours I spend with you. Oh Allah, I can't live in this world without remembering you. How can I endure the next world without seeing your face? I am a stranger in your country and lonely among your worshipers. This is the substance of my complaint. In love, nothing exists between heart and heart. Speech is born out of longing, true description from the real taste. The one who tastes knows, the one who explains lies. How can you describe the true form of something in whose presence you are blotted out and in whose being you still exist? who lives as a sign for your journey. My beloved, with my beloved, I, have, I alone have been 
when secrets tenderer than evening airs passed and the vision blessed was granted to my prayers that crowned me else obscure with endless fame, the while amazed between his beauty and his majesty, so there's Jamal and Jalal, I stood in silent ecstasy, revealing that which over my spirit went and came. Lo, in his face commingled in every charm and grace, the whole of beauty singled into a perfect face. Beholding him would cry, there is no God but he. <coughs> la, 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 and he is the most high. Okay. I want to share one line from here that jumped out. The one who tastes knows. The one who explains lies. <laughs> so that's our challenge, right? Is to, we're, all this talking is so important, but underneath it all, it's tasting. And which Psalm says, taste, taste and, and see, see the, God is the, the goodness of life unfold. <laughs> that's one of my favorite lines from Psalm. So to the extent that we can take all of this important <coughs> intellectual activity, I am, and not forget to embody our experience. It's really important. Let all, <coughs> excuse me, let all of our uh, sharing here reinforce our experience of uh, knowing the goodness of being alive. Can you email these to us? Oh, yeah, we could send those around, all those quotations. Most of those are from, um, they're from Rami Shapiro's translation. Uh, he's got a book, The Divine Feminine and Biblical Wisdom Literature. And so he's got, you know, from across all the sources compiled. But we could send those around. Sharon, if, if, you, send me the, if you send me the document, okay. I'll uh, have them printed out next time. And I don't have everyone's email. Okay. And I'm so sad we didn't get to talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. I know. Because <coughs> maybe next time, because these Sophia passages in the medieval liturgies become the readings for her feast day. So she becomes in, in two Sophia. Weeks, let's start with Mary and how Mary becomes the embodiment of Sophia. And can you help us know? Thank you, everybody. Thank you. Thank you.